Steve and all the great theologians for their input into this. In my job that God gave me and I humbly have taken upon is to just put all that, all their knowledge and put it all down into a piece of paper in front of me. So I am sharing their thoughts with you. So if we're all together, we can go ahead and we can start. So let us begin with, um, let us begin with a prayer. As we gather together, Lord, around your name, we pray that you would fill our hearts, our minds, and our souls with your word. Transform us, Lord, and make us more like you through Jesus Christ, our Son, your Son, and our Lord. Amen. Janelle, I'm going to ask that you turn the volume down just a hair, only because it's probably echoing in here to some people. And I just don't want it to be irritating. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay, with that, let's start. It amazes me how many people spend so much time searching for the truth, but yet they totally ignore the Bible. In his poem, Miriam, John Greenleaf Whittier reflected on this very same question. He said, we search the world for truth, we call, the good, the pure, the pure, the beautiful. From graven stone and written scroll, from all old flower fields of the soul, and weary seekers of the best, we have come back laden from that quest to find that all the pages, all that what all the sages said is in the book your mother's read. You see, God never intended truth to be mysterious or unattainable. His word is a gold mine of truth containing every principle we need for life. But knowing his truth begins with knowing about God, who's the author. So let's get started on our search for truth in the book of Genesis with a quick Bible trivia question. Here we go. What do Noah, Abraham, and the King David all have in common? Well, the answer to that is that they all at times had covenants between themselves and God. If you've ever spent any time studying the Old Testament, you would have come upon the word covenant. Today, it's rarely used, yet the understanding of the concept of the word is incredibly important. It's important in understanding not just the Bible, but the ancient world culture that encapsulates the Bible story and the world culture of that time. So what is a covenant? Well, simply put, it's an agreement between enacting parties to remain faithful to the actions stipulated within it. This makes sense when you think of the covenant we are most familiar with in our culture. That's the covenant of marriage. So in scripture, covenants are how lasting relationships are formed. So let's turn our, to our study in Genesis 17. In it, you will find God's one-sided covenant with Abraham, and, your, and God provided 
where God will provide and he will uphold this covenant. Abraham is just a recipient. Now, we also find that there's a two-sided covenant. It's a covenant of circumcision in which Abraham must uphold his side with obedience in order to maintain the covenant. In Genesis 17, we see God as God of the impossible. I love that, God of the impossible. Abraham needed the God of the impossible because in chapter 16, he tried to give God a helping hand by having a child, by Hagar, an Egyptian slave, no less. And we saw how that turned out. Not very well. So why would he do this? Well, one thing is he lacked trust in God of the impossible. This not only caused all kinds of problems at home, but it is the source of the Arab-Israeli conflict today. Now, Abraham is 99 years old, and we are not told of any communications between God and Abraham in 13 years. This possible silence is broken in verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. In this this is the first time God identifies himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. The meaning is important, and it varies across different peoples in different translations, but here I think strong and powerful are the best definitions of that word. You see, God is powerful, and he's strong enough to control all things, including nature. So Abram was told, walk before me and blameless. The important thing we notice out of that is blameless in this instance is not a condition. It's a command. In verse 2, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. The unilateral covenant mentioned here is the same covenant of chapter 15. Here it varies only to emphasize that Abram is God, is El Shaddai. The God lists several impossibilities in the next several verses that he is going to accomplish. God will accomplish them for both Abram and Israel. By calling himself El Shaddai, God explains to Abram that he can accomplish anything, but it will be in his time frame, and he does not need our help. Now, how convicting is that for you? Gives me a gigantic ouch. Because, you see, this should give us great encouragement in time of doubt. How many times are we try, have we tried to help God out by tackling a problem without even asking for his input? I know I have, and like Abram, the results had far-reaching consequences. You see, God does allow failure. It disciplines us and allows us to grow. He is El Shaddai, the God of the impossible. We need to seek his wisdom, and we need to trust him. 
Abram's response to this was in verse 3. And Abram fell on his face and he talked, and God talked with him and he said, Now, God reveals his power to Abram in three ways. First, God will provide him with children, a multitude of children. Verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of multitude of nations. Now, because this will happen, God says your name will have to change to reflect this. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father. Now notice it's I have made you, already done, the father of a multitude of nations. A change from Abram, who was named by his father Terah with the meaning exalted father or coming from nobility, he changed to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. So not only will there be a multitude, but there will even be kings. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Now in Jesus, we are children of Abraham. All who believe are included in that multitude. In Galatians 3.8, it says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. The gospel is proclaimed in the Old Testament as far back as Abraham. Now, how amazing is it that we are spiritual children of Abraham? God not only promises Abraham a multitude of children, but he promises a land for those Jewish descendants, verses 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting covenant. And most important, I will be their God. After the flood, God gave the land of Canaan to Noah's son Shem, from whom Abraham descended. Today, the Arab nations lay claim to this land as a birthright from their father, Abraham. But God didn't choose Ishmael. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, as the child through which this promise would continue. So you see, God really is the God of impossible. For up to now, Abraham is 99 years old, and he has a barren wife. He has one son, but it's by an Egyptian slave, and now has a name meaning a father of multitudes. He's a sojourner. He doesn't have any land, and he's promised a vast land, and he's he has been promised a line of kings. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens 
and the earth by their great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Followed by verse 27, it says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Now, you see, if God can do all this, is there really need for any human input? We just need humble, trusting faith. Now, if you struggle with this, I see, you know, you could try meditating on how big God really is. How big is God? Isaiah says that he holds the universe, all the universe, just in the palm of his hand. He holds all the seas and all the mountains and everything he has, and he holds them in the palm of his hand. How really big is he? If you focus on this, it changes your perspective from me to him, the big God, the God of the impossible. Review your past diaries and all you thought was insurmountable or impossible in your view. But was God faithful then? Did he hear you? Did he answer you? Whether it was yes or no, he loves you and he answers you. You also need to have a spirit of submission because you see God is sovereign. He is in charge and he chooses how he will accomplish his plan. Remember, again, no need for human input. But I want to remind you, this does not mean that you do nothing. The old thing of let go and let God is wrong. You need to do something, but you need to proceed only after seeking godly wisdom in prayer and submit to the answer he gives you. We have seen how God shows Abraham his power by first telling him he will be the father of a multitude, and he changes his name to reflect that promise. Now, secondly, God tells Abraham that he will give him a sign of that very covenant, a sign to show that they are God's unique, special, and chosen people. Verses 9 to 14. God said further to Abraham, now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you, through all their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout their generations. A servant who is born in the house or is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. 
Circumcision was not a new practice at that time. However, God says circumcision was now to be, an, be of infants, and God named the time frame of eight days as the perfect time for that to accomplish. Failure to do this meant excommunication from his people. You see, God wants to cut away sin from the Jewish nation. This act speaks of purity, it speaks of obedience, and it speaks of commitment to God. Now, why in this manner? Well, it's from this organ that man passes on the sin nature to their children. Remember that Jesus had no earthly father, and by having no earthly father, the sin nature was not passed to him, and he remained sinless. This is an outward sign of an inward change. I repeat, this is important. This is an outward sign of an inward change. But Jews thought this made them children of the covenant just by the outward sign. Speaking of Abraham, Paul talks of this in Romans 4.11. He says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while he was uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who come to believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. An outward sign of a regenerated heart. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is an outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that is which of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and his praise is not from men but from God in writing to the Colossians Paul is speaking to Gentiles he's speaking to us and he's saying in Colossians 2:11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Changing the nature, your nature, and the heart of a sinful man is something only God of the impossible can do. By faith, there is a circumcision of the heart, and that inward change gives you a brand new nature. You now have new desires, and now you can choose not to sin. You can choose to be obedient. This does not mean you still don't struggle. It means you now have a choice. You have a choice to show that inward change reflected in your outward walk. If you have not accepted the fact that you are a sinner, and like Abram, you are in desperate need of a Savior, who is God, the God of the impossible, I plead with you today to seek him. Call upon Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins and turn in faith only to his death on the cross as payment of that sin, that sin debt that you had. And you will have assurance that you will meet that God of the impossible in heaven. We have seen so far two promises made to Abraham by God. First, the promise of a multitude of descendants. 
Secondly, God gave him a sign of this covenant made between himself and Abraham that will pass on to his descendants. Now let's look at the third promise God promises to Abraham. He promises him a son. We pick up in verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, she shall not, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. By changing Sarai's name to Sarah, God changed the meaning of her name. Sarai was to designate her as my princess. How precious is that? My princess. Sarah was now a princess, designating her to be a princess, not just to a family, but to a multitude of people. Verse 16 continues with that thought. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Wow, a son. By Sarah, no less. Advanced in years is no hindrance to the God of the impossible, for she will not only have nations as descendants, but kings of nations, a son. And remember through her descendants that that son will be the promised son. How amazing. Here's Abram's resp Abraham's response in verse 17. Well, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? Now, you see, some think that this laugh was just of joy. He was overwhelmed with joy. Others believed it was of confusion or doubt by noting the next verse where Abraham mentions that he has a son. Verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, you see, we need to remember that just because God can do the impossible, it doesn't always mean that he will. In this instance, God said no. Verse 19, but God said, no, Sarah, shall be your, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Ishmael means he laughed, and God said Ishmael was not to be the son of promise even though the Arabs believe this to be true today. But, you see, God did not disregard Ishmael, verse 20. For as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But followed by verses 21 and 22, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Again, a promise of a son. Abram's, Abraham's immediate response to this in verses 23 to 27. 
Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were brought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and Ishmael, his son. All the men of his household, who were born in the household, who were bought with money from a foreigner, they were all circumcised with him. We see immediate obedience. Now, how he explained this need to all his household is not given to us in Scripture. Can you possibly imagine that conversation? I've been talking to God, and he says that we're going to do this. Well, I think the Holy Spirit must have been active in giving Abraham the words he needed to accomplish this task. All must have agreed because and obeyed since we are not told otherwise in Scripture. They are now a people, a people set apart, a people chosen. So why was Isaac chosen over Ishmael as the God of promise? Well, the whole history of Israel is an example of election. Romans 9, 6 to 9. But it is not as though the, the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. You see, God always has an elect remnant from the descendants of Abraham. This can be seen when God chose Isaac. Election is not based on anyone being better than another, or what we think of today as being fair. You see, no one deserves heaven. All have sinned and all deserves hell, as explained in Romans 3. But with election, it reveals God's incredible mercy and grace. Because, you see, he didn't have to choose any. But he did choose some. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think of that the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Chosen to show his mercy and to praise his grace. Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now those are important words, counsel of his will. 
You see in verses 12 to 14, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession and to the praise of his glory. You see, it's his purpose should be our purpose, and that's to the praise of his glory. We see in Genesis 17 that God can do the impossible. Why? So we praise him for who he is. Why we're here, to praise him for who he is, to strengthen us in times of trial, even in, through persecution. You see, God wants us to be encouraged. He wants to give us hope. So, what are you trusting him for? Are you trusting him for forgiveness? Are you trusting him in crisis in your family or a crisis in your business? How about loneliness? Do you trust him in while you feel when you feel lonely? How about the salvation of loved ones? Do you trust him there? You see, we all struggle in our walk of faith. Great women of God do struggle. We've seen it in the Bible. But he is there to help you. Remember, he is El Shaddai. He is God of the impossible. So let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life for air to breathe, for health and strength, for loved ones who are not perfect people, but people who support and care for us, for our church family and for giving us your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who pursues us so faithfully and brings us your truth to bear upon our lives. Thank you for the life-changing experience of walking with Jesus Christ. And thank you for the assurance of sins forgiven and the promise of eternal life. We want to focus on your goodness. May our walk be for your glory. Would you cause genuine gratitude to be in our hearts, thoughts, and words? For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you, ladies.